Hi, I'm Justin King, and welcome to the Blue Chip Academy. As a five-star recruit, all-Big Ten corner, NFL vet, and Power 5 recruiting coordinator, I understand the emotions that go along with the recruiting process. The Blue Chip Academy is here to provide education, critical insights, and mentorship through the recruiting process for families and athletes alike. When athletes and their families have proper education and guidance, they're able to make better decisions and set themselves up for long-term success. Blue Chip Academy provides the resources and information that empowers athletes to create their own blue chip blueprint and take ownership of their careers. Blue Chip Academy exists because when athletes and their families are armed with the right information, they're able to make the decisions for themselves that positively impact their future. Again, I'll be your host, Justin King, and welcome to Blue Chip Academy. Yeah, welcome back to the Blue Chip Academy podcast, the Blueprints of Success interview series, providing unique blueprints, tactical knowledge, best practices, and navigate the critical points in the sports ecosystem so athletes and parents can prepare a plan to a career path that any athlete can bank on. So today we have former All-American, Parade All-American coming out of high school, first team All-American, Big Ten co-defensive player of the year, all those good things, first round pick, professional actor, renaissance man, uh, my, my guy. Jared Aldrich, how you doing, man? <laughs> Good. How you doing? I thank you for the the invite and the welcome and the reciting of the accolades. Sometimes you you forget you were this this guy. So And that's the thing, right? The whole process, yeah. it changes. It's like the whole maturation process, the great transformation. Like, you know, you said yeah. forget it sounds like you forgot that you did those things. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you do, but Thanks for introducing me. I appreciate you having me. No, 100%, man. So we talk about just the whole process, and you obviously have a unique perspective. You've seen a lot going through the process, transitioning out. What would you tell your 16, 17-year-old self now going into the college recruiting process to look out for or main key points to navigate? Yeah, I mean, it's funny that that's kind of the lead-off question because it's it's something that I kind of answered before getting – uh, onto uh, video conference with you. You know, I recently got into uh, to racing cars, and I've been racing cars at an amateur level, um, and hopefully into a semi-pro level uh, here in the next year or two. And um, I had a mentor. Like coming into racing, it feels similar in terms of receiving advice and everybody coming at you with advice because you have potential both in your ability, but also your potential monetary value to the world of racing. Um, and so I, I have a mentor who's been um, pretty key in me trying to find a new competitive home within racing. And he always uses the analogy or metaphor of a sandbox, you know, a place where kids can play. Um, and he always talks about, and I would repeat that there's all these different sandboxes that you can play in and you can keep your sandbox, um, within a certain realm. And what I would tell my 16 year old self is to protect your heart, um, and to protect, um, protect the game. Um, and those two things can be taken from you. Um, when industry creeps into your participation with a game that you love and you should do it for love and 
that's exactly what industry wants to receive from you is your love for the game, but process you uh, in a different manner, something that doesn't involve love, but involves revenue and rightfully so, especially if you're looking for revenue yourself. And so uh, that's something I would say probably to my parents, but I would tell the 16 year old me is to protect your heart and keep your love alive uh, for the game and to always uh, take the Sean Lee approach and always think you're not working hard enough. Always take the Sean Lee approach. I had a pause on yeah. a little bit ago and we talked about yeah. that whole that whole thing, man. But no, that's, a, that's an amazing answer. And I think that's very, very, I mean, it's on point for like where this, the whole sports ecosystem is right now, right? We just see the different transitions. We talk about, we'll talk about NIL later, later on, just the business of sports transitioning down to, you know, 13, 14 years old. And those things where your identity's being developed and you're trying to get attention from schools, you're chasing a dream, can get real discombobulated really quickly. And I mean, like the coaches, I mean, some of them are, some of them help, some of them to keep it real. But a lot of times, like you said, there's monetary value at the end of the day because now coaches make X amount of dollars that they have to make sure that they recruit certain type of players and that they're performing at a certain type of level. And going with that, I think that's a great advice. Protect your heart and your love for the game because there's so many things that go through the process that it, it, it bastardizes what it, what it started off to be for us, right? And no, that's a, that's a, that's a great point. So jumping back a little bit more and we talk about your recruiting process, I mean, you were a parade All-American coming out of high school. So when you were going through the recruiting process, were you like excited? I mean, because you obviously, I mean, introspective about different things and just critical thinking about the different aspects that you're going after. Like, did you know, did you want to go to Penn State or was it kind of like an open sea on it? Yeah, I was very excited about the recruiting process. I mean, in a way, it legitimized a belief that I had about myself and the visions that I had of the future um, outside the context of my small hometown. Um, Lebanon, Pennsylvania is where I grew up. Um, I was born in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I grew up in Lebanon, Pennsylvania, um, town about 20 to 25,000 people. Um, and, uh, and there seems to be a, you know, a common trope or Lebanon motif that pops up is everybody's talking about getting out, getting out, getting out, you know, and go experience the real world as if it doesn't exist there. And, uh, and when the real world came knocking on uh, my door, both literally and figuratively, you know, where coaches started coming and showing up to the high school by the time I was in ninth grade, um, the end of my ninth grade year. Uh, yeah, I was very welcoming of the outside world coming in. I was very welcoming of what these coaches and college shirts had to say. Um, and, uh, because it fulfilled the dreams that I had of getting out. Right. And I think it kind of, uh, it, uh, it entertained that dream. And all of a sudden here were these magical people showing up that, uh, you know, with, you know, sun kissed skin from Miami, that that's what happened with my ninth grade year. 
uh, Coach Art Kehoe accidentally, yeah, accidentally showed up to the high school because he didn't know that I was only a freshman. He thought I was a junior. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I, di- I didn't know I was mistaken uh, in uh, my timing here because I think at the time it would have been considered illegal. And I don't think anybody's going to go after Coach Kehoe for me right. dropping that. But um, <laughs> but they had just won, I think they had just won a national championship either that year or the year before or recently. And it was year 2002. Okay. 2003. So somebody wants to look up when they when they won the national championship or at least they were on national television a lot at the time. And I just couldn't believe that the University of Miami was coming to visit 14-year-old me. And uh, and so then, yeah, I mean, with everything that started happening, the recruiting process and how it expanded and got bigger and more intricate, um, yeah, I was very welcoming of it because I, I always wanted to get out and um, here was the ticket. Well, that's, I mean, that's a great, that's a great answer. I mean, and with that, you said protect your mind, protect your love for the game. At that point, were you more excited about, were you more excited about the opportunity to play or were you more excited about the attention that you were receiving? I think it was the, the opportunity to prove myself. Okay. Okay. I always wanted to, you know, prove myself. And it was this one, it, it was daunting, right? Because wait a second. Those bodies that I see on TV don't look like this 14-year-old doughboy, <laughs> you know? And that's what I felt like at the time. Like, I didn't have enough definition. I didn't have enough muscle. I didn't have enough anything. You know, I had size and, you know, an experience of football that was localized to central Pennsylvania, which, I mean, I didn't, I didn't give much credence to because the people that I grew up around didn't give much credence to either. Um, and so I was just like, do they have the right guy? <laughs> you know, um, what are they seeing? You know, is this a big trick being played on me type of thing? At, but then you kind of grow into it as more and more coaches show up and more and more letters show up. So um, and I, I just remember wanting to prove myself, but also. Yeah, I mean, there was nothing like in the middle of class pulling out all of these questionnaires and filling out all the questionnaires that universities were sending you. And I'd pull it out in the middle of class and a teacher would ask, you're doing work, but not schoolwork. And I'm like, yeah, I'm 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 doing schoolwork. Uh, (laughs) It is schoolwork. (laughs) Yeah. And there was nothing better than pulling out this stack of letters and. You know, it was like I was trying to jump three grades, you know, by responding to all these questionnaires from all types of schools from all over the country at that time. So. So, yeah, I mean, attention definitely is a part of it. Attention is definitely a part of it, because I think you feel like when you live in a small town that your existence, your talent, your um, desire has such a potential to be overlooked. Let's stay on that or your potential to be overlooked coming from a small uh, area in Pennsylvania and just having that aspect. It's like it was a little different for me in Pittsburgh. It was like whoever's on the front page that year is typically going to go off and do something. So it was almost an expectation of if you're in that spot, this is what's going to happen. How like when you went to the All-American game, how well, tell me a little bit about that experience, because now you're out of the. You know, you're, you're out of the central Pennsylvania and now you're actually competing against other people. And it's not just 
oh, this guy's ranked over here because you were coming out at a specific time where Rivals and 247 was pretty new. So, like, this was, you know what I mean? So, how was that? Well, the U.S. Army All-American game, I'm not sure if it's the same game is sponsored by the same entity. Uh, But it was definitely something facilitated by uh, Rivals and... Um, what was the other big website at the time? Uh, was it two four seven? Could have been two four seven rivals, and there was another one. Um, um, I forget the name, but there was a handful of recruiting websites that were popping up on your fifty six k modem <laughs> that you would have on your gateway computer desktop. Right. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, how that happened, getting there, I would always tell people, in hindsight, do the interview. Keep doing the interviews. Right. Keep taking the interviews. People want to talk to you, say yes. Yeah. People want to write a story about you, say yes. And that's what I did. And I just realized that, you know, scanning the internet and watching the top 100, top 25, top 50 of this region, of this county, of this state, of this, you know, wasn't good enough. You had to actually engage these people. And this is before, you know, we were so content inundated. We were content hungry. And the more you gave to an interview, the more you connected interviewers with other players the more your ranking went up, you know? <laughs> so you understood the whole system very early, like like essentially merit-based networking, right? We just transitioned to corporate America. Yes. You got to go from merit-based to, oh, I got to perform on the field to now I got to have relationships. You were doing that in high school. <laughs> Bob Lichtenfels. Remember that <laughs> name? Up to the, shout out to the Bob if Bob's listening, man. Yeah, I Bob remember Bob L. I remember it's like, oh, I know him. I grew up in a very predominantly, culturally predominantly Puerto Rican and Dominican neighborhood where a lot of men, you know, kind of shaved or buzzed their eyebrows very thinly. <laughs> and Bob Lichtenfeld had some, some, some manicured eyebrows. And I said, I know this guy. <laughs> I know this guy. And, uh, and, whether that was natural or not, it looked like, you know, he was a little, you know, Dominican poppy or Puerto Rican poppy, you know, trying to get yeah. an interview. And it was like, okay, all right, you know, I'll talk to this guy. But you could tell that he wanted more access to players. And, you know, any of the few, I didn't have a, like a big Rolodex of players, but, you know, anytime I went to the Nike Invitational at Penn State or to any other type of invitational opportunity to the showcase, you know, I might have some type of cross-reference of other players and I try to throw Bob, you know, different names and people and, you know, feed Bob and he feeds you. And so uh, it was the same with other interviewers and whatnot. And so they were they were hungry for content. And so that I think that was a huge part of it, of putting your name on the map and that one single grainy digital photo that they might have of you that might circulate. You know, if you had more than two photos on a rival's website, you were a special player. Hey. You you were special. 
the fact that she understood the game back then, it was like, oh, he's trying to talk to me. Like, I'm going to give some value here, and then he'll help out my rankings. It helps to my dream going this way. And you weren't thinking about yourself. Like, you were tossing up, giving alley-oops to other people as well. I mean, it's finding those beautiful business opportunities, and you were doing that in high school. So I talk about these, like, the recruiting process is a very – very interesting piece for just a teenager going through because you're just getting prepped for corporate America, being an entrepreneur, whether it's your critical thinking skills, sharpening those things up and just being able to whether read people, understand what you want from a situation and go through it in a strategic way. So like that's, that's, that's very cool to hear that because I was really strictly on the merit base, right? I need to have X amount of yards. I was, I understood going to the camp circuit and performing well, but actually talking to the reporters I was the son of the AD and the head coach. Like that was kind of just natural. I didn't think I didn't pick it up as much as you did. And I was keen into it. (laughs) It seems like you, you were in a program. Right. And you had multiple forms of representation. And that's something that maybe that I felt that I didn't have. My father wasn't involved in my sports career. Um, You know, my coaches were, but even then they were kind of, you know, football centric and not necessarily recruiting centric or, you know, traveling all over the place, you know, to, to, to get you places. But I think that's what led to the All-American game was being able to understand that, you know, moving up in the rankings had to do with my play, but mainly had to do with uh, the way people talked about you. Um, and so um, when I got there, it, a, a series of things happened that were funny that stick out of my mind at the, the, the All-American game. Well, first what happens is, is that, the All-American tour comes to your high school. That's a, and, that's a, that's a deal. Like, and if you, yes. if you don't have a big head before that happens, man, that's... <laughs> and that's probably what cemented me in my school as the ultimate asshole. Um, <laughs> that a whole uh, period in school was taken away for everybody to gather in the auditorium or, excuse me, the gymnasium for there to be a presentation and crowning of an all-American prince in the school. Um, it's, a, it's an obnoxious ceremony. It's, it's pretty obnoxious, <laughs> but hey, look, you know, they're, that's what high school's for. It's to stratify. I love, I, I mean, I remember it to this day. I, I want that picture, but that's funny. Yeah, It's to stratify everything. You know, you get ranked. You know, you can't get rid of hierarchies. They'll exist for the rest of your life. And the school, the teachers... My coach, the the principal, the U.S. Army's coming to town. We have to salute and respect them. And they want to give one of our students a crown of some sort in the form of a black and yellow jersey. And so, um, yeah, there was literally an assembly for my crowning. And just like I'm sure there was for you and everybody else that happened. But obviously within the ecosystem of your high school, you know, you feel like the the special boy. And so... Um, that happened. And from there, you know, going to San Antonio, the game was in San Antonio at the time and going there, um, you got to pick a roommate. And at the time, uh, Chris Bell, um, was a wide receiver who was from the seven, five, seven area code. He never let me forget that. And, uh, he, uh, was being recruited. And I met him a few times on recruiting visits to Penn state. And he's like, Hey Jay, Hey Jay, you know, uh, he'd always, uh, you trying to be my roommate. 
And I'm like, yeah, man, let's be roommates for this thing. Um, actually, you know what? I, I lie. It, that happened at the All-American game where we became roommates for Penn State freshman year. What ended up happening was I was supposed to be roommates with LaShawn McCoy. And uh, this is right and after he, he broke his ankle and fibula uh, in high school. He was the most electrifying running back that year in the whole country. That's and a fact. I remember his grainy videos were just amazing where it's like this guy's, you know, Barry Sanders. Uh, and he was doing crazy stuff on the field in high school. And it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. So it started off there. And the funny thing was, is that we actually were, uh, for lack of better terms, uh, by that time, we were Eskimo brothers, uh, where we ended up dating the same girl. Uh, there was a little uh, layover or lap, overlapping in our dating of, uh, of Monica Dean. I'm dropping all <laughs> the names. She, Man. Uh, and so... It happened, uh, yeah, right around the time I met her at the Harrisburg Hardware Bar when they did the 16 and overnights uh, in downtown Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And so, uh, uh, and so, anyways, I guess that was that was entry point one. And then two, while I was there, um, it was just the first procession. It was the first gathering of a really high-end pool of talent, Percy Harvin, Brandon Spikes, Tim Tebow, um, um, Brandon Graham. Um, who else was there? There were a lot of guys, Chris Wells, Beanie Wells, um, you know, top-end talent. And uh, a guy named Rob Rose, who was the number one defensive end in – the nation at the time and who was just physically overdeveloped for an 18 year old where he had, he had looked like an NFL defensive end by the time he was like 17. And I remember thinking like, Holy shit, this guy's, you know, kind of jacked up. And, uh, and there were a few incidents there where I felt like I was on an Island where I slowly became. So the thing was, is that LaShawn never showed up because he, he gotten hurt. So he never showed up. And so I was by myself. I didn't have a roommate. So I was the only player who didn't have a roommate uh, at the hotel, the, the team hotel. And the first, it was either the first or second day of practice. Um, for some reason, we all, I made sure, I was very sure that I was to get a wake-up call. I didn't get a wake-up call. And I woke up like 10 minutes late just got off a flight, a series of flights the day before, did a bunch of stuff as soon as we landed. And I woke up 10 minutes late. I ran downstairs. Breakfast was already gone. Nobody was there. And the team bus had already pulled off. And uh. I'm calling everybody like, hey, I missed the bus. So somebody comes back to pick me up, takes me to practice. I'm running late, already starting off on the wrong foot. And uh, Teddy Ginn Sr. was our head coach. Uh, and uh, he really, you know, I'm sure I put a bad taste in his mouth, but he put a bad taste in my mouth uh, as soon as I got to practice and kind of let me know that I would be falling down the bench where I would not be 
you know, this is ridiculous and this is not the type of commitment that he would expect from a player. And I said, I don't have a roommate. I didn't get a wake up call. I'm sorry. I apologize, you know, but he didn't want to hear any of that. So I knew I had my work cut out for me and I had to bust my ass to get some quality attention at the practices and eventually at the game. But this guy, Rob Rose was, was, you know, you know, walking on water all week where he was Teddy Ginn senior's uh, pupil or understudy or uh, 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 player for his high school team. Teddy Ginn was his coach. And so it was Rob Rose's world, man. And just within the realm of like competing against other D linemen, I remember thinking like, I want to prove myself. I want to prove myself. I want to prove myself, you know? And I think that's one thing I, I eventually prided myself on throughout my career at all levels was some type of mental fortitude that I believed that I had that other people didn't possess. Gotcha. And, um, and I wanted the opportunity to show that and display that through physical effort and exertion. And so I felt like I was practicing good all week, but just never really got complimented that that first day of being late was not, was not doing well for me. And so, um, yeah, that happened. And then there was this incident on the bus and I'm not, and I, I'm not sure if I ever told Rob Rose, I'm not sure if I ever told this story out loud, really. Um, we were coming back from a practice because you would practice at a location and you would come back to the team hotel like bowl practices. interviews. Exactly. Just like a bowl practice where, you know, you did your interviews, there'd be media, you'd have team rooms, you'd have game rooms and all these different ballrooms of a massive hotel. Um, you'd have different meetings, you'd have different presentations, different speakers, your day was full. And it was my first experience of having a full day where it's like, wait, I can't go play my PS2. Like, like what's going on? I got next you five know? minutes to get here. And on the bus ride back, also Maurice Evans, AJ Wallace, Chris Bell. That, that's and, the, y'all had a class, man. We all talked about it on the yeah. previous episodes, man. That class was my favorite, deep. <laughs> and there was something that happened on the bus where the, very quickly the cool kids developed. The guys who assumed the cool kid seats on the back of the bus. And I wasn't one of them. Uh, Tim Tebow, of course, sat up front. Um, and everybody that was in the back was Maurice Evans, Rob Rose, uh, Beanie Wells, Vidal Hazelton, AJ Wallace, the cool kids, guys that already had tattoos. And, uh, and I remember thinking they were kind of joking on people and they were going around joking on people throughout the bus ride. And, Maurice Evans's laugh is contagious and he was laughing and Rob Rose had said something to me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm mixed. My mom's German American. My father is African American. And he called me a mutt when I was on the bus and that infuriated me. And everybody was kind of taking the jokes from the cool kids in the back. But I said, nah, fuck that. Excuse my language. Yeah, that's good. I'm sorry. There you go. I got up and I walked directly to the back of the bus. And I said, you're not going to say that to me. He's like, what are you going to do? And he stands up. So I'm going to come back there and I'm going to kick your, I'm going to kick your ass. Well, what does, what, what happens between those three seconds? But 
Tim Tebow somehow flies over top of all the seats in his cape and lands in between me and Rob Rose and goes, stop, guys, we're a team. Come on. Tim Tebow comes in and saves the day. He may have quoted scripture at the time, too. And he stops me and Rob from getting into it. Now, obviously, there's this competitive nature that we all have, but especially with me, I felt like I was being slighted by, you know, every turn uh, that there was. And, you know, um, I just remember that being this thing where I wanted to not just beat up Rob Rose at the time, but I wanted to be better than him. And I wanted people to, I, I remembered that moment and I took that with me to the game. I took that with me to Penn State, and I took that with me to Miami. And Rob Rose eventually actually ended up on my uh, on my Miami Dolphins team. And I was uh, he went on to play at Ohio State. I obviously went on to play with with you at Penn State. Um, you know, he he had a career at Ohio State, and I was able to be a first round draft pick to the Dolphins eventually. And he ended up on our practice squad. And and in all honesty, you know, I looking back at it, you know, Rob was a great guy. Rob was a guy who worked really hard with the Dolphins, um, but his career didn't go the same way at Ohio State that I felt that mine went at Penn State, obviously, in the way that I was selected into the NFL. And it felt like some type of vindication for that day on the bus. Wow. Like all the way full circle. Yeah. And so when we saw each other with the Dolphins and he got signed to the practice team, I knew that there was, you know, bringing that day up wouldn't do anything for us now because I'm, you know, we're teammates. But I, I think we both knew and understood, you know, how I felt at that time and how he felt. But we ended up being good teammates with the, you know, within the context of the Dolphins. But that feeling on the bus that I described is what I took with me through the rest of my Penn State career, that people were not expecting much from this Lebanon kid. And I just wanted to smack everybody with it, with what I believed I had. That makes, a, that makes a lot of sense. That story makes a lot of sense. And even from like just the context of coming from Lebanon and then going down here and you're like, all right, big kid, small town. And now you're here with all the different athletes across the country. Cause I don't know if a lot of people understand that the U S all American, all American game, these different high school all American games, like guys are coming from all the different places of the country. People talk different. People, I mean, when I went down, it was like Kenny Phillips, you know, all the dudes from Miami say, bitch, what up, bitch? Like, you know, those fights about to break out all over the place. But there was a comfort leaving there saying like, okay, this is the best of the best. And there were certain levels of competitiveness that you got there that you don't really reach in high school. You were probably never that, probably never felt that way you felt on the bus back at home. But with that, it was like, That's for me, a really it was good like point. confidence and confirmation. Like you said, you took that with you and it's just, it's a real interesting like social experiment, those bowl games, because those guys are in high school. And like you said, the cool kids in the back, because some guys are just, you know, assholes on this on, on the strength of it because they're the coolest kid. I mean, everyone's a top yeah. 50 player, right? This is, <laughs> yeah, this is not me putting me in, you know, obviously no. when you tell a story, you have to put yourself at the center of it uh, to make yourself the, the moral hero of it all. But those guys are all good guys, the cool kids and the not cool kids. And I respect all of their efforts and they all had different paths that they took. But that helped me develop the attitude that I had that I wanted to kick everybody's ass on the way to the NFL. So sure. So now we get to Penn State. So you get up to Penn State. You're, you're a big kid. We knew you were coming up. And I mean, 
coming in, you were in all, you were coming from the All American game, so we weren't thinking. We thought you were going to be good. I mean, you were huge, athletic, all these good things. What was it about when you got to Penn State that made you feel, I guess, comfortable? In the recruiting process or when I landed once you, there? Once you landed there. What made me feel comfortable? Uh, well, there was... Like, was there any comfort when you first got to Penn State? Because you had this experience at the All-American game. You went back to school. And you have this fire in you. Now you get to Penn State, and it's like... No, do you still I, have I, that feeling of I'm sure trying to prove myself or is it just like, no, I think, I think if you were to ask a, a good amount of the guys that we played with at Penn state, that I was a pretty ornery character that I didn't give much relaxation to my thought process and anything that I did while I was there. I was very active on the field. I was very active off the field in terms of not being afraid of creating conflict for the sake of a new synthesis of a new answer. Um, I think I felt comfortable around Maurice Evans, Phil Taylor, the guys in our class that were coming in saying, we don't give a shit who came before us and who's older than us. We're taking spots. I, that's what made me ask what made you got, make you feel comfortable because you're saying you were coming from a small town and I was going to get to when you got to Penn state, you did not seem like you were trying to figure it out. You felt very comfortable walking into a, and I mean, a college locker room as a defensive lineman, which is very, very different because there's typically a size difference with with guys. And it's like a little bit, you know, beg your pardon as you came in. But none of you guys did. You, Phil, Chris, and like they kind of talked about what made them comfortable. And it was just interesting hearing your perspective because you got that fire and then you got there. And it's, I saw it when you got there. You were comfortable when you got there. <laughs> like because we had rules at Penn State and you every rule we watched you like walk up to it. It's like, oh, he's still oh, he's still there and then you have a conversation we go out you're kicking it and it's like you always walk the line right like yeah yeah <laughs> like no i think that's a good way of putting it i you know i mean maybe the fact that i was a, a pennsylvania kid okay. uh maybe the fact that you know i came from a penn state infested area where my mom thought it was like some type of uh malfunction that people had with how devout they were to penn state you know, and obviously that's something that I, you know, I love about my experience there is, you know, the kind of ecosystem, the the asylum of servitude that was created to the logo and to the, the white and blue. And I think that's what made it such the insulation of something like Penn State as a as a university, I think is what made made it so special. And, you know, I think that kind of continues now. Um and I think maybe coming, being a Penn State kid or a Pennsylvania kid amongst all these kids in that recruiting class that were coming from New York, Maryland, Virginia, you know, coming from, you know, Lydell was from California, you know, I thought that was amazing. You know, Evan Royster was from, you know, DC. That was far to me at that, at that time in my life. And, uh, you know, and seeing all these kids coming from out of state, you know, I felt like the, the homebody. You know, that even though it was two and a half hours away from my hometown, two and a half, three hours, you know, it still felt like I was a Pennsylvania kid. Um, and so it felt like I didn't leave home and that I was already in a way on home turf. That makes sense. That yeah. definitely makes sense. I had a little bit of that feel, those feels too. I mean, just traveling up there a little bit. Now, so like you get onto the field, did you have a, did you actually have a welcome to college moment on the field? Like, man, this is big time football. Like, I got to, 
either tighten up or just your experience when you got to Penn State? Did you have a welcome to college football moment? I had a lot of those in the recruiting process. Um, you know, just in terms of like the emphasis that college football and the influence that college football had on universities, on students, on adults um, that would come to the the, the, the recruiting uh, parking lots. Like there were some instances where it's like, wow, like this is this is quite an attraction. This is this really gets people going. But um, but yeah, I mean, trying to think of what. I, I just really think that attitude that we carried into Penn State, we never really wanted, to, like we all supported each other. Corliss, Taylor, Maurice, AJ, everybody had this attitude that nothing was going to surprise us. And there was going to be, there was nobody on the team that was going to get in our way of us performing. And I mean, a welcome to college football moment i mean it's okay if you didn't have one no like, we I, did we we did i'm just trying to figure out like i don't want to put myself or you know the class above growing pains but it was probably more in the weight room with jt you know it was probably more in the conditioning with jt i pride myself we we used to do and uh, i'm not sure if your viewers who are your your viewers and who, who listens most consistently but you know, we used to have to do the, the 300s, which is running once around the field is 300 yards. And we would have to do a series of them. And throughout the summer, we'd build up and through the winter, we'd do 300s or 110s or uh, uh, all the other names for running across the field and, you know, have these timed gassers, half gassers, half gassers these time scenarios for you to kind of pass each day or do well or, you know get a passing grade and you were always so smooth you had those thin hips man that you could just twist and turn and you know you could just you sprung you know you sprung so well and I was always jealous of that because I got these fucking baby making hips over here and uh and so you know the the the, the running and the early wake-ups and the how t I was never that tired in my life after workouts and having to wake back up and go to go to class after this, after they just ran us like this in the morning, go to class after I just did all this lifting in the weight room where, you know, every lift when I got there seemed like a punishment, you know, that I was doing something wrong. And JT, uh, John Thomas, who I revere now, in in hindsight and then towards the end of my career i revered or at penn state um you know i appreciate the militaristic tone that he took with our training and uh you know it's it's something that you'll never get back and there's not very many men that will ask that much of you ever again and and so um it was probably in the weight room with how intense the workouts were and in the field house with how intense the runs were that was that was probably my my welcome to college football moments was were those those moments. Yeah, those physical development pieces are definitely tough, man. Like a lot of people have said that because it's just a different phase of your body, just getting ready and you're pushing into a different max. You're trying to improve yourself and all those good things. So we talk. You talked a little bit about the welcome to college experience or moment, or with fans and just seeing how engaged they were, the fan engagement in different college ecosystems. 
So we know that NIL has come out and college sports and kind of taken over um, everything, a lot of the headlines. What would have been your NIL strategy at Penn State? Big personality, big figure on campus. Yeah, um, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm kind of ignorant about NIL and what I, I had this kind of, you know, massive, you know, philosophical approach to it all. And I think that's what I started off with was protecting your heart and protecting the game. Because as you became a professional, you realized how much industry crept into the way that you thought of yourself as a player and what you could contribute. And it just seems like it gets earlier and earlier where it's infiltrating teenagers and they're making themselves products as opposed to players, right? It's, there's a difference between being a player and a product. And it's almost like it's taking the innocence out of the opportunity of being a player away with the NIL, where you have to start thinking about marketing and presentation that, that takes you out of, it makes you more conscious of your performance and it, everything becomes a performance piece, not just the field. And I think that's one thing I wouldn't look forward to is the marketing of myself outside of the, the play. I understood the communicative efforts of trying to communicate with reporters and giving them something to work with. That's right. Yeah. I always understood that. So I think always giving them something to work with, but there was nothing more cringy than a player who spoke too much and pre over presented themselves, but weren't the guy on the field. Sounds like you would have been the new media before the new media back then. If it was the case where you could have a talk show where you can kind of go into different things. So when we talk about when the NIL thing comes up, name, image, and likeness, from an overall standpoint, guys can monetize off their name, image, likeness for a whole bunch of different reasons. And I completely agree with you. I mean, guys are products of the minute they want to monetize off this game, and that's going to college, right? Like, however else the money's moving around, they're viewed as a product. So it's absolutely true to your saying it's like up to them to be – an exclusive product and a stay a player because it's an opportunity to have real life business experiences kind of brought yeah, to the forefront. I think that's, this is kind of where maybe I never even finished that sandbox analogy approach and mentorship, but that's the thing. It's like you, it feels like you have this opportunity because with racing, what he said to me with racing, this racing mentor, he said to me, you can keep racing because you know, I, I, I race Porsche cup car, which is a very high end race car. And it costs a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and when you own first one, of all, wait, I got to interrupt you. I mean, that that's sweet. Like, we go back to that. What kind of Porsche? What kind of Porsche is it? It's a it's a cup car. So it's a factory made race car in the body of a GT3 Porsche, and um, but it's got none of the 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 niceties. It's raw metal and. How long, did it, how long did it take you to learn how to drive that? About a weekend. Oh, it's like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and a lot of people looked at me like I was crazy for doing so um, because it's a pretty real deal race car. And But I, I had been driving a, uh, a Turbo S since I signed with the Jaguars back in 2015, which has more horsepower but doesn't have the same amount of torque, front-end torque. And so, um, but... 
Yeah, the, 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 the race car I showed up with to driving school, and I, this was my first instructor who's continued to be a mentor to me, um, Chris Windsor with Windsor Customs. Um, and he said to me, he's like, people are going to salivate over you because here you are, former professional athlete entering the amateur racing world with a big time race car. You're coming in swinging for the fences with a very sophisticated race car. You're not coming in with a small horsepower car. You're not coming in with a beater so you can learn. Like going to the golf, going to the golf course with the P, PXG clubs and your 32 yeah, handicap. Yeah, <laughs> correct. And you have an opportunity to put this six-figure race car into the wall with your very little racing experience. But I jumped into it. I just jumped into it, and I think that's kind of how I do things. Um, where it's like, you know, I'm balls deep. And if not, I'm not doing it at all. You know, and once again, I don't mean to. No, you're all right, man. It's, this is the, it's, it's the journey. Like, cause you're reflecting on the journey. Cause it's not, it's not as clean and it is, it is what it is. If I can clean it up, if it's not a heck yes, it's a, it's a heck no. And so, um, and that's what I, the approach that I took in this, this, this mentor told me, there's all these different sandboxes you can play in, but people are going to salivate over you because of the way that you're coming in. Meaning like it can be very, you can very easily make this racing. You can keep it pure and you can keep it about racing. You can keep it about the discipline. You can keep it about the learning and the teaching. You can keep it about the effort. You can keep it about the competition or you can very easily make it about money and you can start trying to flip tricks because you feel the need to make money because you are spending so much in order to keep that high-end race car on the track and that you can keep trying to go race semi-pro and all these other things that have a higher point of entry monetarily. So then you end up making racing something that makes you feel the need to make money as opposed to the pureness of competition. And he warned me of that because of my entry point. And that's how I feel with NIL in a way where there's this massive opportunity to take the amateurism and to take the purity of sport and competition and make it something else that it, it wasn't for you in high school or it wasn't for you when you were a kid. And it's funny that, you know, when people ask me about my career, when you felt you had the most fun, it was at Penn State before I had to worry about money and everybody was oriented in the same way. We were all hanging out. We were all eating together. We were all going to the same parties. We we're all doing this stuff together. And there was no money at play. And and it's kind of a, a funny thing because in hindsight, as a professional, I'm like, man, I should have got paid in, in college with how many people are showing up to the stadium wearing my jersey, other people's jerseys. But then at the same time, even further in hindsight, you're like, yeah, but that purity without the the with the absence of, of of money, name, image, likeness, Instagram and the tagging and the co-tags of Instagram posts that, you know, I'm sure players get jealous of if they're not getting co-tagged by the team. You know, um, it's 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 an insane landscape that takes the purity out of sport and from my vantage point. And that's why I would say, you know, my approach, the player I'd be, maybe I'd be this guy, maybe I'd be the conversational guy where I'd have a podcast where once again, I didn't have to become the mannequin for a 
you know, a product of a local grocery store, but I could promote the grocery store in between my conversation, you know, where I didn't have to become the mannequin. So maybe I'd be that guy. No, that's authentic and that's real. Uh, that's that's kind of where I would have saw you seeing you fitting in, because I'm all, I mean I always think about where guys would fit in because I, not too many players in college are even marketable or I say valuable from the standpoint of market value. But like your class that you guys were talking about, talk about big guys, big personalities. You guys are intelligent. Yeah, you guys had an interesting thing going. I mean, I've said it a lot of times. You mentioned that class, man. We talk about Chris Bell. I mean, it was like an inside joke. He's the best that never was, right? Because he was probably the most talented receiver that played. Explosive, man. At, my, at Penn State while I was there. And it was like, I mean, your whole class, all you guys were just on another level. But you guys approached it like it was, a, like, I mean, you can say, yeah, it was, there was purity to it. But, like, you guys approached it like a business. Like you said earlier, like, no one's getting in our way. No one's doing this. Like, the way you guys approached it versus the other guys that I've seen come through. Hell, I modeled my whole career off of personnel and evaluating high school players off of that class. Like how you guys walked, how you guys moved, like even from the size standpoint, like I mean, I recruit D lineman, whether it's uh, a decent up there now. And I'm uh, Jared Aldrich is he's, he's my profile, right? How you operate, how you, how you operated, how you made people like walk in the line, like Phil, like Chris Baker, like all you guys. And it was just Sean and you see it. Cause it's like that, it's, there's a profile of a player that you see kind of going through the process. So it's very interesting hearing like, your perspective and where you would fit even in this new landscape because there is a purity that's that's missed, right? And obviously there needs to be a ancillary space. That's what we do at LIG, trying to help with like lockdown you, trying to put there's something in place where they can kind of go play, do their thing, and they're monetizing, right? Because Penn State owns linebackers. Yeah, if there's, yeah. And you're, all these you're things, totally... right? You're on point. You're on point. I'm glad that you're doing all this for, for young people because, I mean, it's got to be a crazy landscape out there right now. And, you know, it's, yeah, I, I just I just can't imagine. I think you're on point with all the things that you're doing and trying to create avenues to, to have some type of understanding and perspective going into it. But I, I think what I would advise from my perspective, and this is obviously I don't have you know, children that are coming up and, you know, about to get recruited or anything like that yet. And so it's, uh, it's to somehow separate you from the business because that's eventually what I had to do professionally yep. is that you have to have a sense of self. And I think that comes from family, that comes from father, that comes from mentors at home, that you have something to uphold that is separate from your Instagram following, your marketability, all of that stuff, where there's a massive amount of pressure for you to make to, to, to essentially to, I guess, to exploit yourself. And you don't want to do that. You don't want to take all that goodness that you have, the purity that you have for the game and for competition, and then just tarnish it with, trying to squeeze coin out of it. And I think you want to do that on the field. You want to squeeze in a way, the way I saw it, I wanted to squeeze it out of the guy across from me, right? I wanted to put my hand around his neck and squeeze all the, the value that he had right. into my pocket, right? right? Right. And I think when you keep it that way, if you perform, you don't have to market yourself. You know, Arnold, you ever watch the the pumping iron 
documentary with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yes. One of the best documentaries ever made. And he, they ask Arnold because Lou Ferrigno, who's coming up, the up and coming massive challenger to Arnold's reign of Mr. Olympia for like eight years straight or whatever it was. You know, they say, Arnold, Louis coming for you. You know, you're the, you're the, you're the king. You're the, you're the top wolf, you know, but Louis hungrier than you. And he, and he says, he's like, yeah, but when it comes to the day of the competition, I mean, when the wolf at the top of the hill wants to eat, the food is just there. <laughs> it's like the he may be just there. He's like he may be hungry, but the food is just there for me. I mean, I perform, and that's the thing. It's like if you perform, you don't have to worry about the nil. If you're smacking dudes on the field and you're you know grabbing touchdowns, you know locking people down on the court, you don't have to do that as much. So. I mean, call me old school, call me whatever you'd like, but I think that's what I would try to do is just kind of create some type of separation um, in, you know, keeping your game here. And if somebody, you know, find somebody you trust, something like that, that can help peddle your image in a way, then cool. But nobody wants to buy your stuff if you don't have the stuff on the field. And I like that you said that because that's our saying here. It was like use sports to a, as a catalyst to a career that you can bank on. Like you're using it, right? Like understanding, keeping it in that box, a little bit of reverse engineering on that standpoint. But if it's focused in on, like you said, like being that player and like having this, whether it's NIL or whatever you're doing outside of football, right? Your passions, if you want to be a writer, a movie director, things that you can actually operate in, build on while you're in that, college frame or that college time period, even if you're not getting paid for it, but just starting to engage in a real business-like manner, right? To make those connections, to slide into business even earlier, but to make money in that space as a product, you got to listen to what Jerry's saying, man. Like you have to squeeze the value out of the other person because there's only so many valuable people on a football field anyway, right? That's how it's constructed for a reason. So when we say that about like being a product and all that stuff, we mean NFL, Jared goes on to get drafted in the first round with the Miami Dolphins. We won't spend too much time on NFL opening just because we kind of know where all that stuff lies. But when you talk about your time in the NFL, I mean, I just think there's other important things, right? You've worked on ballers, your race car, your, I mean, you produce shows, like done a lot of different things just to give the whole, um, the whole gambit. What's something that cardinal role or cardinal thing that you took away from your time in the NFL that you kind of applied to, on a daily basis, whether it was a negative or positive thing. You're in the entertainment industry. You know, you're in the entertainment industry and, you know, it's all about the value that you can bring to that, the entity in which pays you. And you have to find out how that, that franchise likes to make money. Um, the Dolphins perpetually, I played for the Dolphins and the Jaguars. I never played in the playoffs in my professional career. And you, you wonder how teams make money that never go to the playoffs. And, you know, it's off of different types of marketability and drama. And, uh, you know, if you can't give them a win, at least give them a show. And that's what it feels like sometimes. And, um, and I think that's kind of where we're at in general in sports and the way we intake content. 
Um, if if you, if you can't if you can't give them a win, you, you got to give them a laugh, or you got to give them something exciting or something controversial. And sometimes that happens at the expense of players' careers. Um, but and you have to be cognizant of that. But I just think a cardinal rule. Um, it's similar to what we've already talked about is that I think in terms of a cardinal rule of player development, um, if that's what we're talking about is player development and individual development, individual, um, indiv more individual development. Yeah. And if it's about individual development, then it's making sure you have a set of goals that are separate than what the game asks of you. So you're expected to want to go to the Super Bowl. You're expected to want to make the Pro Bowl. You're expected to want to be a starter. You're expected to do, uh, you know, to to meet things contractually, whether it's sack numbers, reception numbers, playtime numbers, all these different things. And if your personal goals are exactly what the NFL goals are, sometimes that can really help you as a player in achieving those things. But there should be a slight differentiation. That's what gives you personhood. That, that's what gives you identity, is that you have some goals that are separate from what the game asks of you. Not just the franchise, not just the team, not just your coach, but what the game asks. All the assumptions that are made in playing the game of football within the industry of the NFL. So one of those things is like, well, the game doesn't expect you to play in a tax-free, uh, uh, you know, an income tax-free state the whole time. But if that's one of your goals, then maybe play in Florida your whole career instead of California and try to do that. You know, um, maybe, you know, you want to, what I wanted to do and a part of the reason I, I was looking at either the Raiders or the Jaguars for my second deal, it's like, well, who's closer to the beach? I think I want to, <laughs> I think I want to live on the beach this time, this contract. Um, you know, uh, what else is going to give me, you know, more access to people that I know, or what's going to give me this personal development separate that the game isn't necessarily asking of me, but that I wanted to carve out for myself. And that's what gives you personhood. And that's what eventually gives you some type of either landing spot or orientation when your career is over. Um, because you had a set of goals that, was separate from what the game was asking of you because when you're done with the game and all of your goals were exactly what the game was asking of you, well then, and the game is taken from you, well then what do you have left as a navigational tool of who you are? Where, where are you? Where are you oriented in the world? And if somebody can take that from you, if somebody can take your whole personality from you, that's when guys struggle after they're done when they don't have any other type of strong goals that shaped their their mind their spirit or anything else that was separate from what the game asked of them Man, that's a great answer i also want to piggyback on something that you said even from the standpoint of when you get to the league wanting to be 50 50 or it's about making money like how do teams like jacksonville i remember coming from the team operation side recruiting from penn state and it's like Always want to have the best players. When you're in a team sport, you want to win. Then I worked at the XFL League office, and, you know, you just learned a lot of 
about just sports marketing because you know right there with WWE we're with Vince McMahon how he does the, the road show and it's pretty much it's really interesting that you said that because it's it's pretty much a screenplay that's put on with like you said the drama the characters the characters how they're built where they're from like the whole thing is manufactured and he, we were trying to do he that hates me. league office oh he hate me I mean co- coach I mean this is serious and then we go there and it's like we want to build power teams, all this talent. It's like, no, we're at the league office now. The goal is that for everyone to be 500. We need parity. We need competitiveness, maybe a couple stars, but we need a storyline. We need some branding. We need this, this, and that, and third. And just like you said, it's an entertainment business. And that's when I had, to, I really saw, I mean, for what it was, because like, like the point that you were saying, I was always in that player mindset or the purity of it. Even going transitioning to the business side of the game, it was still approaching problems with a purity to it. And he started seeing dump some of the other aspects and the different constraints or whatever that case may be. It's like, okay, there are lanes out here. So that's where El Hajit was kind of birthed out of that. But we talk about the transition out of the NFL, man, writer, actor, producer, just a true Renaissance man. What would you talk about a little bit about the transition? How would you describe your transition? Hmm. Um, I think I had to engage art. I think engaging art can help you change your mind. Um, and become somebody else. Um, Go into that a little bit more. That's that's very interesting. Because like you said, like writer, actor, I mean, yeah. like race car driving. I felt like I had to engage art to recharacterize myself. A lot of the things that I did right after football, if I made an attempt at writing, drawing, um, going to art galleries and acting like I saw something within the frame of the, the picture or the landscape. I just, you know, you're going to feel, or at least I should say, I felt like a fraud trying new things. And you're going to feel like that for a little bit. Um, like you, you're doing something outside of your wheelhouse. You're trying too hard. You're being somebody that you're not. And you essentially have to until you become somebody else. And I think art really helped me with that. And you're going to have to do something that seems counterintuitive to who you've been in order to become somebody new. And I think the world of art accepted and promoted that idea. Yeah, that's... Yeah. I dove deep. I mean, it was always kind of like that, but I, I never put it, I never put it in that frame that you're talking about, but it was always like, I got to go to the art gallery and it was based on a feeling like, okay, I want to kind of get lost in this. Or I want to be immersed in this feeling. Cause like when you get out of football, there is like an absence of that feeling of feeling alive. Cause you never really put that much effort, your whole, every particle in your body into, into something, right. Whether it's the emotional reward of getting a W or like you said, just physically taking the value out of somebody else. Like you just don't do that on normal, normal everyday life. Hopefully not. But you know what I'm saying? That's, uh, I, I just, yeah, that was interesting about the art piece. Cause I was like, I mean, I am heavy in the art, but I never really associated that with recreating myself, but it makes perfect sense for what I was chasing when I was going into the art. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah that's, yeah, I mean, and I think that's what helped. It helps you create other sentences because I think towards the end of my career, I started hearing myself in interviews. You start to hear yourself. It's not good, right? When you start to hear the things that you're saying and it's like, that ain't me. That's not what I think about or the way that you describe things and you're like, man, that sound corny or man, that just, that didn't, that didn't really 
describe what I feel inside, you know, then you have to start looking for the way, different ways, alternative ways that people are expressing themselves in order for you to create a new alternative path from the character that you've essentially played, which is football player number 91 or football player number 98 or football player number 75, right? And there's a kind of strict, narrow set of characteristics that you should have to be successful at doing that. And I think that's necessary to be successful uh, within the, the framework of sport or football. But I think what art helped me do was help me redefine myself. It helped me find other things that people valued that wasn't necessarily valued within the, the framework of sport. And so when I saw that, I'm like, wait a second, this guy is, he's writing a whole piece about a breakup. Wait, this painting was all because he saw a pretty flower that day. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, that is it, man. Like I would read bios for hours. Like when I was deep, like when I deep, like as soon as I got out of the league, just trying to find the next thing. I mean, whether I was collecting art prior, but like that piece of just being so enamored by what people were able to do. It's like, oh, I had this thought, whether it's this mop painting. Oh, he was a janitor that would use mop to turn this into that. And it's like, wait, you you did that? Like, because I felt like at one point sports becomes easy, right? We know our we know our goal. It's like, all right, we got to do this. And once you get into that habit, you do really admire people that operate outside of that. And it's like, how can I get some of that? Or what is it? That yeah. Makes you rappers want to be athletes and athletes want to be rappers. Right. <laughs> you know, that's it. <laughs> no, man. But with that, like, did that, I mean, diving into the art, I mean, does that open up the aspect of being a writer, you know, going into the films and all that good stuff? Yeah. I used to, when I would, when I would come back on team flights, with the dolphins, I, I had an iPhone at the time and coming back on away trips from whatever city we were flying back from, we, we lost a lot of games and I didn't know how to lose, uh, coming from Penn state. You know, we were, we were very successful and I didn't know how to lose that consistently. And I just felt like this aching inside of me because I was a first round pick. I was injured my whole first year, you know, broke my fibula again, broke my foot, both of them in my rookie year. And I was hurt the majority of the year, only played really in one game because I came back and broke my foot in practice when I tried coming back from the broken leg after the first game. And so in the second year we were losing, third year we were losing, you know, and I started writing notes. And I started writing, you know, my feelings out. And, you know, I was like, man, like this is, this is corny. You know, this is corny, but I feel a need to go into my notes on the, the team plane because, you know, some guys would drink, some guys would play cards, some guys would just listen to music, some guys would zone out and sleep. You know, some guys would be watching tape incessantly, like, what did I do wrong? How can I fix it? What did I do wrong? How can I fix it? Trying to get ahead of the coaches, ripping them a new one when we got back. You know, um, and I just remember being on the team plane and just it's like it was away from everybody else. And I was trying to break down what just happened. Like this is this new phenomenon of being a loser. And, you know, and why do I feel this way? And so I started writing a bunch of notes and I had written some stuff when I was a kid. And, you know, there's this like little poem that I always, you know, I've always kept that I wrote when I, I think I was like 11 or 12 that I really liked. 
that I don't think I'll ever be able to top. Um, but <laughs> because it was so pure at the time, you know, and, uh, and I think, I think, you know, I felt like an imposter then trying to write in my notes in my phone. Um, but I think when you start engaging art and you see what other people are expressing, uh, then you, you start to see that, you know, you, you build different words, different vocabularies, reading different things, different, you know, and then you start to bring in new words, which build new perspectives. And then, you know, words build the future, you know, um, and the more that you wield words properly, the more you can build uh, future endeavors and relationships that help you become the person that you want to be. And so um, I, uh, yeah, I started in, engaging some, some, some books. Um, I started engaging, you know, different opportunities for art, you know, cause I, I don't know. Um, I've always felt my father was an artist without a, without a, without a medium. Um, and, you know, he always took some type of moral philosophical approach to things and, um, and, you know, and I'm not sure if it's like, I felt that I was in the same boat or realm where I didn't, you know, I, I didn't have, I didn't have an infatuation with numbers. Um, so words were always more of a thing for me. Um, so yeah, I think it, maybe it helped get into writing a little bit more. I wrote some things, um, and, uh, just having your perspective down on paper helps you then say them out loud in a more clear, concise way. And I think that's what ended up happening uh, when I was on the set of Ballers um, while I was playing with the Dolphins. You know, I, I had, I'd always made sure my representation and agents were working hard for their 3%. Um, that's a very good point. Yeah, I just always good felt like, three. yeah, like, wait a second. I'm paying you hundreds of thousands of dollars and all you're doing is just getting me a reservation at the club. I'm like, yeah, no, um, I want you to perform more tricks. <laughs> and so guys, you need to, that's a major, yeah. major point, man. They work for you, make them do a little bit more than pay for your. Oh, yeah. Training. And, and if you don't find, like... and if you don't find somebody willing to do backflips for a couple hundred thousand, then there's guys out there willing to do backflips and you, you better find them. They're competing they're competing the same way for your hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars that you're paying them in percentages. So make them work. Don't be afraid to make them sweat. And that's what I did uh, with my reps in Miami. Uh, I saw that they were bragging about being connected to some of the producers of Ballers. I'm like, why the hell am I not on the show? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what do you like? At least put me in as an extra. I said I'd like a speaking role because I can speak. Um, but you know, um, you know, what's up? And so, a few phone calls were made, and um, and while I was on set, I made sure that I spoke to different writers and producers, and I let them know that I wanted to be more than just a mannequin for them. And I said. You know, in between takes, I pulled aside Steve Levinson, the head producer and uh, creator of Entourage, of How to Make It America and Ballers. And I said, and I also pulled The Rock to the side. And I saw other players showing up, Deshaun Jackson, uh, Navarro Bowman, um, other guys. But they were just kind of taking selfies and like, I'm on set. And I'm like, this guy has had a show on HBO for 15 years. Why don't you go talk to him? Like, 
And so been on the merit based networking from jump. Yeah. You've been on, you know it. Like, no, bro, I'm not, and so yeah, I went and spoke to him and I said, How do I become more valuable to you? You know, what can I do? And it's like, uh, I don't know. What do you want to do? And I said, I don't know. I want to do more than stand here. I'm like, can I hold one of these screens and find out how you're directing people? Can I, you know, can I go pick up sandwiches or something? What, you know, what's what's the deal? You know, I want to be more valuable. I remember The Rock was sitting in one of the, the houses that we were filming in, and he, he would always be allowed the space to go off by himself to text and to email because he's just constantly doing something. And I remember, you know, sneaking past his, you know, guys that keep him separate from everybody. And I go up to his room and he's like on the phone texting. And I'm like, hey, uh, DJ is what they call him. So DJ um, said, I don't mean to interrupt your private time, but I just want to let you know that I'd like to be more valuable than, you know, kind of being an extra that has a few lines. And if you have any advice on how to be more valuable, I'd, I'd love to know how to do that. Now, I'm not sure if that's what led to him maybe talking to Steve Levinson and me getting invited into the room as a, a, a writing consultant on, I think, season four or season five of Ballers. But I eventually got a call from Steve Levinson and an invite when I was out in L.A. to be in the consulting, the writing consulting room. And so the thing is, is that, you, look, you can't plead with the public for them to see you as more than an athlete. You have to go do it. You have to fight for yourself to be more than an Preach. athlete. You know, you can't ask people to see you as such because it's not their job to do so. So, um, I mean, that got me juiced up over here, man. That's a great, I mean, that's an amazing story just being able to put those pieces together and having the same approach, kind of how you did in high school, like moving up the ranks, whether it's like providing value, you help me, I help you, and understanding where you were fitting in the whole ecosystem and not being afraid to step outside of yourself, right? When you said talking about immerse yourself in art and kind of stick in a different way. I mean, from a defensive lineman to a writer on an HBO show, what was the hardest transition there? Well, just to clarify, you know, Steve Levinson sometimes likes to watch what I do on the internet. So I'm, I wasn't a writer. I was a writing consultant, although I did get writing consultant. I got credit. I got credit for the whole season. I did get credit. I had my agent. In representation, call him. He was very annoyed that I was trying to get credit for the whole season, although I only reviewed like five episodes. Um, My bad. Yeah, Casola. I'll but, take the Well, that's yeah. what I'm saying. We were trying to squeeze as much. It's an industry. You got to fight for it because they won't give it to you. Got to fight for and it. So, um, so, and I think that's a part of the reason he respects me a little bit. A little bit, I should say. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. What was your original question? No, that, I mean, that was it. It was just going back to, uh, no, I, th I don't think, I was just reframing what oh, okay, I already sorry. said. No, it's all good. No, no. But it's always interesting when you're coming out of sports, when, you know, like you're talking about the different transition points, understanding and diving into art, getting into the writing, finding your way through. And it's like begging your pardon a little bit. And then there's like a moment where it all clicks and kind of you revert back to like, all right, I'm just going to choke the life out of this opportunity because it seems like you're there now where it's like race car drive. I mean, driving race cars with you know and all doing all that good stuff when did you feel comfortable reverting from your reverting back to your instincts from sports and just comfortable in your overall transition like okay i'm comfortable in my skin and who i am now let's go let's go and do what Are you talking about racing like life like life like yeah well racing might be what it is but i mean you talked about ballers i mean yeah throwing short 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 films 
all different types of things. I mean, constantly plug away at your interests. Make your interests work. I'm constantly reading. Every morning I'm waking up and I'm reading. Um, and I'm reading what I'm interested in. I'm not reading top 10 books. I'm reading my interests and I'm diving into it because then when you speak to people, people hear the authenticity in your voice. You're not repeating pop culture phrases, right? Follow your interests, but make it work, right? Toil away at your interests. And I mean, I say, I'm saying that to myself as I say it out loud because, you know, you still get disincentivized to toil away your interests. You know, you still get disincentivized to do that. And you're, you're incentivized to always engage the consensus, to engage pop culture. But I think the reason I might feel comfortable to say something like that to, you know, Dwayne Johnson or Steve Levinson or to go hop in a race car or to do because I've invested in my interests, not necessarily in what people want me to do or expect me to do. And I think it's because I've followed my interests. There's a certain type of authenticity you get to speak with and you enter a room with confidence because you know you're within the framework of what you're actually interested in. You're not acting outside of yourself because you've continually and perpetually reinforced your interests. So you speak genuinely and people desire that. There's so many people that feel pressure not to genuinely speak. Although you may have less friends at times, people will value what you have to say when you step into a room if you've always invested in what you've genuinely been interested in um, and to not give that up. And so I, I was able to, in 2020, get cast to be in a film um, that just came out this year uh, with Sylvester Stallone a lot of other great actors uh, in a movie, thank you, called Samaritan. And, um, you know, in, 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 in the, the trailers or uh, on set, I'm confident in speaking to people, although I was very nervous getting there. And it's like, you know, the first day I'm flown in and I have to chase Sylvester Stallone down driving a car in Atlanta where we filmed it and not hit him. Um, a 75 year old man walking across the street. Um, you know, it was pretty intimidating and it was a challenge, but as long as you're being honest about what you don't know how to do, what you want to know how to do, asking questions and speaking within your interests and what you know how to do and admitting your ignorance, then, I mean, there's nothing that you can't do. And you're able to retain a certain confidence when you enter different rooms because you're always within that realm of, yeah, this is who I am. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not acting outside of myself. So what do you want me to do? It's investing in knowing yourself. Yeah. At the end of the day, one of our guests, Ryan Monday, shout out to him. His key advice was know yourself because the same type of same adage is going through the process of so many different things that pull you away to where you're trying to figure it out. The money changes, your passion changes, and you're trying to put it all these puzzle pieces back together as you continue to transition in a formative time of your life. Invest in your interests, man. Like that's a key piece, and like do it without fear. And even if you do have fear, do it anyway, because 
that's the only way to yeah, really get to usually, the other side. Usually if you have fear, that means you, you're, you're doing something that is, that is outside of what you've usually done. Like you should have some fear. There should be a little bit of clenching of uh, puckering of, uh, the uh the hind parts when when doing something new or doing something that yeah that f- there should be stakes at play there's a strong there's a strong apprehension to that when guys have been at the top of their game top one two three percent and something their whole life and then, like these other skills aren't developed so to even walk in that that sometimes that is lacking when we see people kind of fall off or not jump into that next phase of life and invest in your interest, right? Because it does feel fake. There does It does feel like, well, I haven't been doing this. Or someone might say like, you're into this or you're into that and having true confidence that, no, this is who I am. And like you say, I really love the fact that you say invest in your interest, like whether it's reading books about concussions, race cars, uh, digital photography, whatever the case may be. And this might, this is the last little section because I wanted to touch on that. You came in from Europe. You were out there for an event. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I was invited uh, to engage some people at the sixth annual International Concussion Conference. Um, the sixth annual, yeah, so I was invited to engage a series of neuroscientists and to listen uh, to the sixth annual International Consensus on Concussion Conference. Um, and that was held in Amsterdam uh, at the beginning of this month in November and uh, or at the end of October, actually, into the beginning of November. And so, um, yeah, that was a new experience for me, although I had been engaging some neuroscientists over uh, different neurological concepts for a little while now. Um, and obviously, having played in the NFL and having a player's perspective, which, you know, conferences like this end up affecting uh, policy of the sports leagues like the NFL, NHL, FIFA, uh, you know, et cetera, in the Olympics. Were they all in attendance or all the, all the sports leagues in attendance? Um, yeah. So this conference was, was sponsored by FIFA, the FIA and the Olympics. Uh, and there was a few other people that I was missing the NFL and the, NHL, I believe, both pooled their sponsorship, but they were all in attendance. They were all in the audience. They were there to still very much pay attention to what neuroscientists had to say, what the eventual consensus was, um, how people... They just couldn't sign off on the consensus that they were discussing. Correct. To an extent. Correct. They, you know, in which is what you think about what the jobs of, of lawyers and representation is, is to keep people within a kosher environment that might not get them another billion dollar lawsuit. Um, and so that's what that game is, is like supporting the work and the initiatives of potentially affecting policy around concussion and head impact. But at the same time, making sure that you're not putting yourself in a precarious position if somebody has an alternative point of view. Um, but I think that's why I brought value to asking questions at the open mic engagements because I don't have a PhD to tarnish, right? There's a lot of people there that have PhDs, whether they're, uh, you know, they're practicing, uh, whether they're practitioners or whether they're uh, uh, alone in their ideological silo of being a researcher. Um, or a neuropathologist that are actually cutting open brains and looking at the effects of all types of things 
uh, from food, diet, stress, and obviously head impact, um, you know, they kind of bring their very specified scientific language to the table. And what I essentially do is try to distill some of that and ask questions in layman terms um, that might be able to tell the crowd that's there, which is still PhDs and practitioners, but break down what they're saying so it's not so esoteric and so scientific where they're talking numbers, longitudinal studies, different uh, aspects of scientific rigor. And so, um, yeah, it was really, consensus is a funny word, man. Um, consensus is what we all have to react to or deal with. And it's what affects policy, um, especially when it comes down to uh, governing leagues and the way they treat players and the risks that they put up in playing contact sports, which I think is a very good risk to do because risk build, builds competency. And I'm all for the sport of football uh, and other contact sports, even something like racing. You have to put something at risk in order to be to build competence. If the stakes aren't real, if the repercussions aren't real, then neither are you. And I think if you don't put something at risk, and essentially, um, that's what I was trying to do is have scientific jargon be broken down into metaphor, analogy, and kind of colloquial terms. Um, Got it. And do my best to then take opportunities like this and transfer some of that. And one of the biggest takeaways that I had from that event in terms of how it's going to end up affecting policy is that they're finding out that the old standard, which is really a contemporary standard of putting a player in a dark room, separating him from conversation, social engagements in order for his brain to recover is not actually the best route in recovering from a concussion. That social engagement actually is helping nourish the brain and that it helps you re-engage and fire off certain parts of the brain uh, that allow you to have engagement without putting your brain at risk. And that what may have been usual practice for us in high school or college and professionally, I'm not sure if you had a, a concussion or somebody assumed you might have had one. Three. But I'm not sure what the protocol was at the time, but you may have been put in a dark room or told not to look at screens or not to talk to very many people. And what's coming out of scientists' mouths and their newest studies who are studying concussion specifically is that that might not be the best route. Now, you want to mitigate risk of returning back to the game, but you want physical activity. You want social activity. You want these things that there's still stimulus for the brain. It actually helps you recover, right? But it's not what, it's not isolating. You don't want to isolate a, an injured brain. Right, you still want it to be in a realm of being challenged to end up communicating and reacting to tasks. And so that's one of the biggest things is that, you know, I, I raised my hand and asked the question. I'm like, so did it seem like our science for over the past, you know, several years sophisticated to the point where we were taking too many precautions with recovering from concussion to the point now where we're getting a little bit closer to rubbing some dirt on it and getting back out there? They're like, well, we wouldn't say that. 
But yes, it seems like we can take some of the precaution away from having social engagement and task-oriented engagement for the concussed brain because having those things help you engage the, 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 the injured tissue, if you will. It's almost like what's happening now with the body in a lot of programs where active recovery is the word where you need to be active in your recovery and not passive. Um, you know, if you think about it simply, blood coagulates when it gathers, right? And it becomes harder to move that blood and to regenerate new blood. And so it's very similar in, in the brain. It's very similar in the brain. And they're finding out that some of those similar concepts apply and that we can actually take away some of the, uh, the fences that we've put around people who have put themselves at risk without re-injuring them. That's amazing. It's crazy how fast, I mean, just how the medical industry or just practicing medicine continues to change and staying above, right? Because like the implementing them into the leagues is another couple of years and getting a buy-in from them. And as things continue to matriculate, it's, it's interesting how they're going to implement all these different things with the head injuries as they're changing the rules in the game and trying to affect it. But there's ways around it. And I, I appreciate you doing that type of work of going out to Europe and, and actually asking the questions to the doctors and different things. Cause there's always, you know, people talking about, Hey, we care about this. We care about that, but actually investing in your interests to a point where there's greater good to it, man. So just want to say thank you, Jared, for coming on to the show, man. Thank and you for having me. Giving a lot of information, a lot of just knowledge on how to go through this whole ecosystem, man. And just really being authentic and, and really, just genuine about how you came from Lebanon and the interest that the stuff that happened at the all American game and what you took from it, just very like, you know, just very uh, vulnerable. I would say like, to be honest. And I just really appreciate you sharing with the crowd and everyone keep your heart safe. Like Jared said at the end of the day, because going through this process, there's a lot of things that push and pull family dynamics, finding your identity and understanding that. And there's everything that comes within this industry in the past. There's things that are working against that to not keep your heart safe and get you to think a different way that we talked about earlier, whether it's being a product, not being a player and just understanding where you fit and understanding your identity, because that's what you, that's all you are. That's what you have at the end of the day. So Jay King, thank you for having me. Thank you for doing this. I really think what you're doing is empowering and enriching to people who might come across your content. Um, And I hope, you know, more and more people engage you in your content in general. But I think that culture is a consistent man and you're bringing consistency from what it looks like to a lot of people's lives. Uh, it seems like you've had that example before you uh, with your father and other people that have been in your life and, and football. And I really appreciate what you're doing when people talk about which I think sometimes can be an empty term for the culture. I think you're a representative of it because you're a consistent man. I appreciate that. Much love, respect, yeah. dog. Everybody, man. Thank you. Of course. Thank you for having a good me. Good one. All right. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Blue Chip Academy. To help navigate the recruiting waters, LIG Sports Group put together a Blue Chip Recruiting Checklist. Download your checklist at LIGsports.com Blue Chip Academy to ensure you're making informed decisions through this process. Hit subscribe and check out the LIG Sports Group Football Ops and Recruiting YouTube channel, where we'll talk about the recruiting and other critical points in the football ecosystem. If you're feeling stressed, confused, or just want to help putting together a blue chip blueprint for you and your son, don't hesitate to book a console call with me at LIGsports.com backslash Blue Chip Academy. 
Remember, everyone has a different journey. Keep sharpening and remember that you can only go to one school. Just make sure that you have your blue chip blueprint together and execute it. Life is good.